unfortunately, what's happened in Washington, and more generally, is that the conservative movement is bankrolled by certain large donors uh, with certain overwhelming interests. Um, and they police the discourse with a ferocity and a lockstep mentality that has frozen conservatism as a, as a, as a philosophy in place um, and turned it into an ideology that cannot ever change. This is bullshit. America's leading industry is still the manufacture, distribution, packaging, and marketing of bullshit. I swear I'm not drunk, Josh. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, every t every time we do this, I feel like the only reason you want to do the podcast is because it gives you just an excuse to sit in wherever you are and drink beer. <laughs> just sit in front of a desk and a computer. Thank God I don't have to look at your face. Um, you know, and then just, you know <laughs> see, and, I and just drink. no, no. I envision I envision that you do the podcast out in the garage where you're stuck to go play <laughs> video games. No, no. Thankfully, I'm in a slightly warmer location with a computer and 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 just like one light. You know, like <laughs> just like you know, sort of like the uh, you know, like the FBI interrogation room. You know, where it's just like the one light shining right in your face. You can't. No, see but I think let's let's let some listeners in first of all. Welcome to the NBS podcast. Yes, uh, thank you for are. joining us. <laughs> yes, we've been we were gone for a little bit while. Uh, we just did our Shakespeare episode, so go check that out if you haven't. Um, it's pretty cool about storytelling. It's definitely in my wheelhouse because I'm Josh Simpson and I'm a thespian in this podcast. Boom, boom, pow, pow. What about that transition? Yeah, I mean, that was uh, flawless. Uh, my name is Ian Savage. As as you know, I am the philosopher in the room. Otherwise known as the local misery maker. You know, the person who makes everybody <laughs> miserable. Oh, the misery maker. Uh, yeah, there we go. Yeah. I would buy that. I would buy that mug with your face on it. Right. Oh God. I don't even want to think about that. Uh, frankly, you drinking a mug with my face on it. No, uh, no, no. I wouldn't the, be drinking it. Part, we would like, make I'm a totally killing because, Hey, no, we wouldn't be drinking. <laughs> we would make a killing because I would just donate them to like, the, you know, those, those businesses that pay you to smash stuff or like oh, you pay them and you get to go into rooms and smash stuff. You know what? Actually, I think I just had an idea. What would be good? You know how like there's all those coffee mugs that say like, don't, you know, don't do anything or don't talk to me until I've had my coffee. It's just yes. like I'm you, you can say on the coffee mug, I'm a misery maker until I've had my coffee. There we go. And we need to protect free markets, which leads us to the reason right. why we're here today. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. That's also an excellent. Uh, I'm just crushing there. these transitions. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, what, uh, so yeah, I mean, as, as Josh was sort of alluding to, I mean, you'll figure this out in the title, our dear listeners, because they're so smart. Um, we, I swear to God, that wasn't condescending, I promise. Um, but Oh my gosh, I'm so glad that you had to clarify that because I yeah. was sitting here like, wow, Ian's <laughs> like, already throwing shade at the listeners. It's like... Already doing it, yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> and I'm I mean, like, why are we not growing? Um, yep, yeah, so, um, no, so we're kind of continuing this, you know, long, uh, dormant, uh, series i suppose on political and philosophicalisms we're sort of i don't want to say we're completely removed from that series but you know we we've been teasing doing an episode on conservatism and progressivism um for quite some time now and and i think it was about time to do it and especially right. just because of with everything going on in america especially right now in the in the wake of of uh, trump's impeachment and his um you know, the end of his term. And then on top of that, like just the state of the GOP, I think it's really interesting to talk about that right now. I think it is too. And I think honestly, it's 
there is so much jarble. You know, I think I was talking to Ian off mic and I said, there's going to be so many different isms that we're going to have to at least briefly touch on because they're so similar, mm-hmm. you know, and you have these different aspects of politics that interweave in sort of philosophical ideology. Like, you know, a conservative is not necessarily a Republican and a Republican is not necessarily a conservative. And, and who's liberal? What's liberalism? And you have you know, libertarianism also a splash in here too. And they all kind of stem from this stuff. And I feel that we are it's easy to get confused and we sort of connect things and we, we go to the extreme on each side. So I thought it'd be fun. You know, Ian, I was like, when you proposed that, I was like, yes, let's, let's cover conservatism because you know, you where I'm going to try to do my best, I guess, to take off my bias hat and really just (laughs) try to, and try to envision what these, what this movement or philosophy means. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, maybe something too, I'll just say, you know, before we get into it and we can flesh it out a little bit more as, as we, go into it. I think what's really important to uh to consider is that a lot of political philosophies and 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 the springing up of their ideological roots I think a lot of it has to do with uh our own psychology and our and our temperaments, right? Um you know, this is something we we've sort of talked about on the podcast before. You know, at, there's great research uh, actually done by Jonathan Haidt, who we've talked about before on the podcast. He wrote the book, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind. Um, I can't remember. He he wrote another book that is dealing with the subject. But um, if I can find the name of it, I'll put in the links of the podcast uh, show notes. Uh, but, he, you know, he talked about how in people who are more conservative minded um, or I guess rather, you know, maybe putting this the other way around, like they did some uh, psychological studies where they would put stimulus in front of um, uh, in front of volunteers and or stimuli rather. And when people were uh, confronted with things that would are more like repulsive or disgusting that after doing like a political test, they would show that they'd be more conservative or I don't. Okay. I don't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. We've been living in, we've been living in COVID world for so long that you were like, they're going to introduce them to stimuluses. And I was like, Oh, they all getting money. Like, where's the study going? (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry. That's that's coming. Yeah, I know. But then you were like stimuli and I was like, okay, I get it. Like sensory stuff. But at first I was like, man, that was, I just had to, I just had to make that known. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But you know, it's sort of along the lines of, you know, people who are more grossed out by certain things are tending to be, uh, you know, more conservative minded. And then people who are more open to certain other stimuli are more liberally minded. Now, that's very like that is taking it as a base level. I am nowhere near like covering the the whole of that idea. But long story short, I think what is fair to say is that the reason why we fall into certain political camps is one has to do with our parents, right? I think I think that's an obvious obvious explanation for you know if our parents are more conservative, unless we're like super rebellious at a particular age, like we're probably going to. That's also like, that's why it's a tough thing because you're right because it's we're speaking averages here. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, you know, developmentally speaking, humans are idiosyncratic. It's like we all develop like similarly, but we all have our own unique stuff. So obviously, there's a there's a portion and like for especially in late adulthood that essentially says that you either do one of two things you either adapt to what your family you know dynamic is or you use it as a counter example of what you don't want it to be like a chance to be different sure um, so that's normally kind of a split thing but yeah it's I, I would agree with you that at least what's going on in the home is is an often connected right especially and also that- with conservatism yeah. Well, there's also, oh, there's also that common adage that the older you get, the more conservative that you are. And I think 
what some people miss in that is that, you know, when people hear conservative, it's obviously uh, a very loaded idea, you know, at least in in our common understanding of it as far as politics are concerned. Because, like, you hear, like, I'm not going to be conservative when I'm older, or it's just like, I am older and, like, I support all these progressive or liberal ideas. So, what are you talking about? And I think is what it comes down to actually is it is more. Uh, it is more descriptive of your psychological state, maybe as an older person. Now, of course, like Josh is referencing, like this is more of an uh, on average. But I mean, if you think what conservatism means, uh, we'll get into it. Like it's it's like I'm more concerned with with change. Like I don't want a lot of change to be happening. And you know what? Actually, let's probably, start there. Ian. Yeah, it's probably let's, a good let's idea. Start, to just let's get start into there. It, right. Yeah. I was going to say, I was going to say, I think really where we should start this uh, before we get too far, because I know you and I just like to freaking gab. Um, I don't know what you're talking we, about. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But we should probably define conservatism or at least discuss the philosophy around it. Um, and then maybe talk about some of the areas where it branches off, such as social conservatism or fiscal conserva- conservatism. And, sure. You know, basically just get a wrapping of understandings and the meanings, and then we can kind of talk about the interwoven aspects of it. Right. No, I think you're absolutely right. And, and it's a it's a definitely a natural segue. So, you know, a lot of this um, I'm just pulling from online, you know, easily accessible resources here. Um, you know, so pretty much, you know, anywhere you find definitions of, of conservatism, you're going to find very similar results uh, that I found. But specifically, I saw three separate themes or ten, not tenets, but like traits of conservatism. Uh, and so the three of them were tradition, hierarchy, and realism. So in tradition, um, according to Michael Oakenshot, or Oakshot, sorry, um, he's a, a conservative that we'll be talking about here in a moment to be to be a conservative rather is to prefer the familiar to the unknown to prefer the tried to the untried fact to mystery the actual to the possible the limited the limited to the unbounded the near to the distant the sufficient to the superabundant the convenient to the perfect present laughter to utopian bliss such such traditionalism oh my god i can't even say that word may be a reflection <laughs> of trust in time tested methods of social organization giving votes to the dead traditions may also be steeped in a sense of identity so i mean this i think it's fairly self-explanatory conservatives are on average going to be more uh they're going to be putting more effort into keeping traditions alive than some liberals um (laughs) sorry that was again not derogatory you know but like people with a more liberal mindset who like no change is good like change is always good no you're not wrong i mean there's there's always this been this trope with conservatism i i can't remember what i was watching but of course like you know we like to i like to digest information on either side and and try to give it a so, but it was basically just talking about con- conservatism in the sense that it was like family and it viewed mm-hmm. the individual as a connection. So then the way that they feel is it's like, it starts with self and then it, then it outreaches to family and then it outreaches to church, which your, your house of faith. And now there's a lot of religious elements, like you said, that has crept into this. And then it expands to, you know, city and then state and then country you know what I mean? And it, and it opens up like that. And so the, the way that they view it is, like you said, that tradition of family and how it scales out to country is why, like, those traditions are held true and, and they're so serious about not wanting to lose them. For sure. So the, the next thing that we have here uh, in the themes of conservatism is hierarchy. Again, that's sort of self-explanatory and is one of those uh, terms that I think 
a lot of criticism is being aimed at conservatism lately. Uh, lately. Um, and, you know, I'll just read out the definition here to sort of explain why, and I think it'll be obvious. So basically, in contrast to the tradition-based definition of conservatism, some political theorists, such as Corey Robin, define conservatism primarily in terms of general defense of social and economic inequality. So from this perspective, conservatism is less an attempt to uphold traditional institutions and more a meditation on and theoretical rendition of the felt experience of having power seeing it threatened and trying to win it back. Conversely, some conservatives may argue that they are seeking less to protect their own power than they are seeking to protect inalienable rights and and promote norms and rules that they believe should stand timeless and eternal, applying to each citizen. So this right here, I think, is the first major, major contrast to something like liberalism, where equality, at least on a basic human rights level, is one of the biggest proponents, whereas something like a more hierarchical thinking is like, no, there are clear divides. And Josh, I'm wondering what you think about this, um, because obviously in our society, uh, we have, you know, a class structure, you know, it's, 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 it's very much uh, driven by economic status. And it's one of those things where I think a lot of people, not necessarily on the left, but a lot of people who are just working class or who are just, you know, going their average everyday life, you know, they will criticize uh, the sort of hierarchical nature of our, at least Western society, but then very much sort of add to it, you know, whether it be in the products that they buy or the people that they idolize, you know, could be celebrities or, or CEOs, whoever, you know, what have you. Um, So I'm wondering what you think about this. I mean, to be fair, I think, uh, first of all, I, I think that it's a remnant of kind of where conservatism came from, like Europe conservatism, or you look at Great Britain, or, or mm-hmm. places that had um, hierarchical structures, like kings and queens, and, and functioned that way for quite some time. You know, and I feel like with, with America, it's like we're a relatively new country. America was founded on liberalism, you know, so I feel like the Western influence of conservatism most likely was stemmed from liberalism. So there there's a connection there, which I think that's why fiscal conservatives and, and liberals kind of share um, similar, similar pathways. But I, I really just think that when it comes down to I'm, I'm trying to find a way to, to to put this in the right words. I just don't understand where like this this idea of that kind of tradition it would be appealing mm-hmm. to you know what I mean because this it it basically is admitting to like a dominance and undominance thing, and so I guess you can connect that to a sense you know of of race power or or maybe just power power where people that really believe that maybe had the power or understood what that power means, but I just don't see that that kind of dynamic really being in kind of our American Western version of conservatism. Sure. Yeah. I mean, because I, you know, I think that one, it's, it's uh, maybe not as obvious as it, as it should be, but you know, the, the idea of human rights and, and, and liberalism is relatively new, right. Compared to the rest of Western uh, philosophical and political thought, right. Like most of Europe has been completely hierarchical insofar as there have been kings, there have been, you know, lords over over lands, you know, there have been serfs, there have been slaves. There was a very clear divide um, amongst the, you know, the powerful over the powerless or at least less powerful. And the idea that liberalism brought with it that people deserved, you know, certain 
rights, you know, and freedoms. And more perspicuously, with- like individuals. You know, yes, like that yeah, was exactly. The, yeah, the individualism big, big itself point. is actually a relatively new term as well. Right, um, so right, because that was that mind. was kind of the liberal mind frame. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. the classic liberal of like, I should be able to pluck an individual out and they should have the best, you know, possibility of moving forward. But, right. you know, like, obviously, like, you're, you're actually, what you're saying is making sense because classic liberalism, the critique of it is the fact that they pitched this, like, individual equality when they were obviously doing things like having slaves and, you know, the if, they basically weren't heeding to 100% of, of what they felt. So that would imply maybe that, you know, deep down, they, they actually do believe that there is this hierarchical structure. Right. Well, and that's also why, too, I think that if you look at society today in America, for example, I mean, it is clearly hierarchical, like not that people are worth more or worth less um, and or have less rights or more rights than one another. But the fact that like there are clear economic divides where there you have a shrinking working class, there is there are people who are below the poverty line. Um, and then you have people who are upper middle class or or upper class who have clearly much better lives than uh, the rest of us. And while I don't think you I, I don't think if you go up to Jeff Bezos and like really sit down with him, and I'm, you know, I'm just using him for exa- for an obvious example. Right. But if you go up to Jeff Bezos and you talk to him about like whether or not he's better than his mailman, like he's probably I mean, I don't know Jeff Bezos, you know, but he's. He, I can imagine that he'll give somewhat of a humble response. Maybe in his private life, he's like, no, I'm better than all the postmen and postwomen you know, in America, uh, you know, but like, I don't know, like, I, I think we view hierarchy a little bit different than we used to, but I think it's still there. Um, but I also in, think, too, that, like, ways. you have to look at the purpose of hierarchical structures, especially in, like, mm-hmm. a society like America, because I think really what drives, again, and I'm trying to be kind of like I'm trying to view this through a conservative lens because that's what we're doing for this episode so I'm going to try to be a little bit better about that so like for me what I think a conservative mind frame would be is, is that like seeing it gives you it gives you a place where you can go like that's your motivation it goes if I had if there was somebody that has something more than me then like I can eventually reach that level you know so it's like you need a goal to strive for mm-hmm. and and having a system where people are worth less or worth more you know, and, and basically economically speaking, let's be fair. That's kind of where the big divide is that like, that is, that is something to strive to. And that's why we need them. And also they also believe in that caliber of people is what keeps societies going too. For sure. Yeah. The, uh, the desire to strive to that sort of level level of wealth. Well, let's get into the last um, theme here of conservatism and then we can sort of move on to some of the prominent figures and, and, and open up the conversation a little bit more. So the last one here is realism. So conservatism has been called a philosophy of human imperfection by Noel O'Sullivan, reflecting among, among its adherents a negative view of human nature and pessimism of the potential to improve it through utopian schemes. Uh, I promise I didn't write this for you, Josh. So the intellectual godfather of the realist <laughs> right, Thomas Hobbes, argued, who we talked about in our liberalism episode, argued that the state of nature for humans was poor, nasty, brutish, and short, requiring centralized authority. So I think this is one is really interesting, and it's partly why um, I I mean, I don't identify as a conservative political thinker, um, but there are a lot of aspects of conservatism that I 
uh, latch onto quite a bit. And, and that has to do with, you know, me being raised and, and, and me having a certain temperament. But this is sort See, I of find that fascinating. I find that fascinating because like, <laughs> if you think you, you talk about, especially, I mean, I don't know, maybe I would say that like we talked about this before for those, we'll break it down. So you're more of like a fiscal conservative where like less government individual, like let us do our own thing, free market, like fuck it. Um, you know, but sort there's, of, yeah. there's, yeah, fair enough. But there's like, you know, with social conservatism, it is about that tradition. It's about that family structure. And I know you when we were growing up and you were <laughs> you were anything but fitting in line with that traditional family structure. So it's it's interesting that you could still kind of like hold those beliefs within yourself, even though for a good portion of your, you know, or for at least what I've seen, you know, you definitely kind of acted differently, if that makes sense. Sure. I mean, I, you know, I can kind of see why, why you think that, you know, I guess the biggest thing here is that like, or I, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just, you know, viewing what, you know, what the behavior that I saw and just assumed that it connected to something that maybe it was just different. Like it doesn't affect your, I mean, I was cer- let's just say I was certainly a rebellious teenager. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, th- I guess the, what I mean to say here is that as I grew older and grew up, the this realism factor here and the the pessimistic view of of human nature i think there's it has a lot to do with just my cynical side to me like i i lived in the big city well i i should say that i mean no actually hold on i, I want to stop you there i want to stop you there you you said um the 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 pessimist or the pessimist of human nature like the pessimist perspective of human nature uh-huh right i want you to explain that a little bit because you know as somebody who used to really strongly identify with libertarian i feel like libertarian almost has to trust people because of the fact that you think that we should be in a society where we're left to our own. Yeah. I I mean, that's, that's, that's glad actually. I'm glad that you, that you pointed that out. You know, I, uh, I don't want to say I was naive in thinking that I was more libertarian, but I think there was something about libertarianism, uh, that attracted me at first to the, um, like, fuck you. I want to do what I want, uh, sort of aspect Mm. to it. Um, and I realized more, uh, especially, especially the more they were Nietzsche uh, that I was more of an individualist anarchist and that like, Oh, this is like, I, yeah, like people are still shit and anarchy won't necessarily get, you know, anarchy or libertarianism won't necessarily guarantee utopia or anything like that. But, you know, I, I've sort of seemed to realize that the way that our um, uh, society is structured, uh, there is, it allows people to indulge in their worst, worst impulses. I don't so this is where my... but to be fair though it's not that it's not a utopia that I'm talking about I'm just talking about like an agreement of so well, no, no. the, uh, was the so... agreement of a structured society you know just even a regular society not like a utopia like one we have now you know it's like if there was no sort of structure or authority to that and we were all left to our own devices there has to be a certain level of human trust or trust in human nature to right, be right. able to still kind of live and function yeah and so what, I, what I'm saying is that the libertarian or anarchistic view of human nature that we should just uh, you know, it, it, as long as we get rid of, of government, for example, or any type of hierarchical order, then everything will be a okay. I, I'm I am pessimistic on that point of view. Is what I'm saying is that while I oh. am anar- while <laughs> I fair. am yeah. anarchistic, I thought you were arguing for the o- I thought you were no, no. arguing for the opposite. So Sorry, I was like, what? Um, and while, no, no, you're fine. You're fine. While I am individualist and anarchistic, I don't think that just removing these sort of orderly structures will just make everything okay. What I'm sort of saying here is what I'm um, agreeing with the uh, 
sort of Hobbesian view here is that it doesn't matter sort of what we do, like the, the structure of society. I mean, cause think about it. You could take away all government and what we will still have, we will still have corporations feeding garbage down our throat about things that we should buy. And we will still have genocides in Rwanda. We will still have Armenian genocides. You know, we will still have fighting over oil in the middle East. Uh, you know, it, there will still just be utter, you know, just bullshit around the world. And that's because right. there's, you know, there's too many other forces forcing us in, in those directions. And so I, in this regard to the, um, to the realism aspect of conservatism, I, the reason why radical change, for example, I think can be so destructive is because when you find something that works, that allows people to flourish, at least in some way, if you try to upset that with, with some other, you know, this is going to come through, obviously, as we read later on, um, in some of the conservatives throughout history, when you add, you know, either socialist or utopian ideas, and I'm, and I'm being vague here specifically, you know, for a reason. Uh, but when you say, when you add in those kind of terms, for hope of utopia or for hope of some type of betterment, I don't think it works out that well because people are a specific way. Um, no, that's interesting. Would you would you say that that your your point of view of not trusting that would have been expanded since you've had a child? Uh, yeah, yeah. Because I think that what it, when it comes down to it, I realize the type of person I was uh, when I had a son. And, and, and I realized, I mean, like, aside from like close family members and, and, and close friends, I'm pretty much a like, no, fuck you. I'm going to do what's best for me. I mean, just recently, like I, I had a job where I, you know, was very, really valued by my employer. You know, he relied on me, uh, to do the work and, you know, he, frankly, he wanted, he wanted more for me at the company and, but the hours just dried up. Right. And I couldn't, I just couldn't sacrifice, um, all that time when I wasn't getting anything back, you know, because I need to provide for my family. Right now, this seems like it's, it's very, it, that's an obvious, um, sort of way to think about this sort of thing. It's not necessarily pernicious or anything, but I, you know, I was like, I just gotta, I have to get another work. I have to find another job. Like, there's no way, like as much as I like this guy for supporting me and, and wanting to do well by me, like, I can't, you know, like I can't dick around. Right. And, and just hope that he finds work for me. Like I've got to do something for myself here. And so while on that scale, like that's a pretty benign, uh, perspective on it. It's like, oh yeah, you just need to do by, be right by your family. If you scale that up and see what other people do just for themselves on an individualistic level, because I know how individualist I am people will do sort of nasty shit for themselves or for the fan or for their family. They just will. And so uh, in that regard, that's where the pessimism comes from. I suppose if that makes sense. Sure. But I feel like this is an interesting segue here because I really want to, I kind of want to talk about family for a second because sure. the aspect of conservatism that I find difficult to comprehend often is, is they keep talking about the not losing tradition and they're afraid about the family unit. You know, in my research, looking at the history of conservatism in America, you know, it was like, apparently it was a lot of conservatives in the sixties got really upset, especially, you know, with Roe v. Wade, like when, when Roe v. Wade past it's like that's that was a turning point where people thought that there was going to be a degradation of family mm -hmm. and that's when a lot of this hype came in and that's when conservatism kind of started sweeping the south 
um, that's when the South started to switch to Republican mainly. It was actually started happening in the 50s too. But the the interesting thing is you can realistically understand that family can mean, you know, who's defining family is, is my question. You know, what is it that, you know, their definition makes that correct? Now, is that is that a religious influence? Does this come before religion or, you know, what yeah. are we looking at here when it comes to family? I actually think that's a good way. Before we get into some uh, more important figures, I think that's a good thing to talk about, Josh, because I think inevitably in the United States, when we talk about conservatism, you just can't exactly separate it from its Christian influences. Um, it is, you know, especially throughout the South and in the Midwest, right? Like on the, on the, on the coast, you know, you don't really think about conservatism in that way. It's really middle America, um, that you, that religion and conservatism is really, uh, linked up here. And I'm not really sure one, how to separate it, but two, like how to talk about it in a, uh, in an intelligent way, because I think. I, first of all, I think it's obvious that, you know, when we look at religion, just in general, uh, in uh, on the West, but throughout just the world, like it has a it has a big hold on cultures and, and peoples, right? Like there's a lot of answers and meaning that people get out of their religion and faith. Uh, I mean, think know, about it, too, though, Ian, religion is religion's about tradition and religion right. also has a hierarchical structure. You mm -hmm. have God and you have angels and then you have us, you know, and so like Precisely. we are we have. And so that, yeah, yeah. And that philosophy is like, we are deemed as imperfect and we have to constantly fight for mm -hmm. the right to access heaven or to be considered to, you know, to, to be in that space. And so that naturally puts us as lesser beings. I mean, there's a lot of, yeah, I see. I, I'm basically saying that you're, you're right. That they're so interwoven. Like, right. how do you detach that? There, there are very many parallels. And so when you see, you know, for example, like with on a, something like abortion, you know, we're not going to uh, hash out the rights and wrongs of abortion on this podcast episode. <laughs> Ian, uh, but, you always just go for uh, the, like the most hardcore. I feel like you're just like, you're well, that person. At, you're that person effective. at a party. That's like, do you want something to drink? And then you'll be like, and I'm like, yeah, I'll, t I'll take like a beer. And then you're that guy. That's like, dude, 151, two shots. I'm like, whoa, that's what, <laughs> that's like, your Is this examples. guy going to be functional by the end of this uh, yep. night? Yeah. You do the 151 um, of examples. Right. Yeah. Like who's got the absinthe baby. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> right. Uh, but it, well, I just, I mean, I use, I use an extreme example. It's kind of like the, this, this adage, actually <laughs> I'm taking this from Sam Harris, you know, but when he talks about like him, uh, you know, studying philosophy, you know, he says that in philosophy conferences, you know, a lot of moral quandaries are, are pretty much everything is on the table, you know, like at a philosophy conference, it's not uncommon to, to hear someone say like, why can't we eat babies? Um, right. and it's, <laughs> It's it's a silly it's a silly and extreme example, you know. But like, I, I mean, like, why not explore something that extreme, you know, that we feel so repulsed by? It's just like, why shouldn't we, you know, shove shit in people's faces? Well, I feel like it's a uh, similar. Well, no, you, it's a similar. Geez, that's God. That was a terrible joke or a setup to the joke because I cut you off before <laughs> I could let you finish that terrible joke. But it, it reminds me of something similar you say about comedians, and they're, they're the ones that find the lines. You know, and it's like, so you, you, how do we know what's too far if we don't explore, you know what I mean? And then right. find where those lines are. So basically like philosophical thought is that exploration. So I, I get what he's saying there and, and that can, it makes sense, but it's still, it's just, a, it's just something that, you know, I, I was never raised with religion. 
you know, my, I would, I would consider my, my parents to be like pseudo Christians where, or I, I can't remember what the lax Christians, there's a name for that. When you like believe in God, but you don't really do the church thing. Like, uh, I mean, well, there's like non-denominational Christian, uh, okay. You know, I think that's it. But, You're right. I think this is it. I think they would consider themselves non-denominational Christians, but they were just like, they told me like explore, figure out what you want. And I was even in youth group for a long time. And like, mm-hmm. I understood community and like, I kind of got aspects of it, but the, the entire f- religion part, like the stories, they just made no sense to me. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, we're not here to talk about religion so much, but you know, I, yeah, but it does help raised... with, it's more of oh, understanding the philosophy though. Is what, is kind it, of no, it absolutely does. And that's why, and that's why, we're, that's why we're talking about it, you know, because I mean, I was raised in a conservative and, and Christian household. Um, I am by no means, uh, religious, um, or, or conservative, I would say, but like there are remnants of those, um, of those ideas that are still sort of within me. And I, you know, and I'm, for obvious reasons, right? Like when you, when you're raised in a certain way, you take stuff with you, but you know, in as far as religion is concerned and it's parallels with conservatism that I think that is why it is so hard to shake the two up, apart from one another, because religion is, like you said, very steeped in tradition. Um, it's very steeped in like, no, 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 we like, we're not going to change. Like, this is how things have been done. But then there are social issues that come up. Like I was saying something like abortion, for example, like that's a really tricky issue because, you know, for, I mean, it's sort of weird, like it's like with Christianity, right? Like life, you know, life is sacred, but there's all these sort of Hippocratic examples um, or where it's just like, well, life is sacred except here or there, you know, and, and abortion, you know, is one of those things that got so latched onto by conservative Christians in uh, in America. And uh, when was we were talking about Roe v. Wade? When was that? Uh, yeah. So actually, I, actually, that's a, that's a good point. I think, uh, I, I'm not sure exactly. I know it was in, man, that's, a, that's, I don't even well, tell you what, let's, let, let, let me use another example here. We can look at gay marriage, right? In 2004, you know, like gay marriage was one of those ideas that thought that it was going to tear up 1973. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but yeah, gay marriage was one of those things that w- it was uh, similar to uh, abortion and thought that it was going to tear apart families. And it's like, well, if the gays can marry, then our whole institution is shaken to its core. See, when well, in, that's kind of know, interesting. When in so reality, that, 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 no, go ahead. Go ahead, Josh. No, no, no. You go ahead. You just said when in reality. So we're getting to realism. You're, you're on stage three already. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm six months in. Um, no, you so, just you, know, you when, just you just sparked like a good thought. So I was like, good. just finish. Well, hold on to that thought then, because yeah, we'll so do. you know, with you know, in reality, what I think here, this is actually a good place to point out the differences here, is that traditionally within Christian uh, culture, you would say that like marriage is between a man and a woman, but this, the, but the institution of marriage itself is more about. Uh, family and household and being able to provide. And if you think about it, like it doesn't matter what gender you are when it comes to, uh, when it comes to raising a family, like the thing about tradition and family and conservatism is that there just are, you know, this is where hierarchy comes in, right? Like there are specific roles 
uh, for people within the household. The children are children and they don't matter. They're just kids, um, <laughs> you know, and then there is a, a, a womanly or wifely role. And then there is a, a manly or husbandry role that is a provider. And the woman is more of a, yeah, you know, it's a provider, but in a different way. And so that's where I think that there is actual separation within Christianity. Uh, it's just that Christianity is sort of repulsive to, you know, homosexual relationships to put it bluntly specifically because I mean, they don't like it in the Bible. I mean, they, they say that like, if you see two men laying with each other, just fucking take rocks and just bash their fucking brains in a little extreme. Oh my God. Um, but I'm just, <laughs> I used to have to like, you have to go, yes. You, all you could have just said is they had extreme views. I mean, like, I, I guess I'm just no, letting people look, know this is an education. Well, yeah. Podcast. Like they don't understand. I mean, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, they also love to cherry pick. So um, the, it also says to do that for interracial couples as well. Um, that's true. But n- that's true. Nobody Don't really go talks about a donkey. that. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my gosh! Of course, I guess you you have to. Be, I'm only going to say that you're just saying this because we're this is a the conservative episode. So like, that's that's definitely in their mind. <laughs> right. right? Yeah, don't worry. But, I, I'm not going to be saying this in the next episode, right? Oh right my guys. gosh! But no, I what I was going to say is the epiphany I had is you kind of covered it, but it's it's just more of like the reason why Road v. Wade was a good example is because that was a clear line between the divide of of liberalism and conservatism. You know, at at the same time, they kind of piggybacked off of each other in the sense that like focusing on the individual, you know, allowed them to like cut back on rules, which meant like, you know, churches can do what they want, which meant that, you know, there was basically there was an agreeance that it didn't interfere. But as soon as that happened, you know, you have you have the you hit the nail on the head when it comes to who's defining family dynamic. And so you are talking about family in the sense of, oh, it's it's taking care of somebody. It's love. It's providing its unity. You know, and all of those boxes are checked. So why does it matter, you know, what gender somebody is? And you're right, it absolutely doesn't. So when people care about that, that is when tradition is found. And that's when Christianity is found. And it's in those values that conservatism is born from and is split. And it's trying to uphold those values. Right, for sure. You know, the other thing, too, the other avenue that I sort of wanted to explore here um, again, before we get into uh, some specific conservatives uh, that we should talk about, but it's how conservatism pops up uh, in other places where we may not think uh, it should. So I I think a good uh, contrast here is the difference between certain liberals or liberal ideas and progressive ideas. So uh, what's really interesting, I was reading this um, piece on Medium, I think it was yesterday and it was uh, this black author who was, uh, who writes pretty consistently on uh, about race on medium. And he was saying that this, uh, I I can't remember the title of the essay. I can find it and put it in the show notes, but he was saying that this anti-racism stuff is starting to become pretty racist. And what he was writing on is he was talking about equality between the races and, you know, all the typical liberal stuff that you might, think you know somebody you know something that you might see coming out of the idw for example the the intellectual dark web uh and sort of opposing the uh race-based tactics that something like the wave of anti-racism is taking so it got me thinking that what traditional liberalism is and the the proponents of liberalism uh today are actually being fairly conservative right because as 
as new as liberalism is, it is still old enough to where its ideas have been perpetuated uh, throughout the West for at least, you know, 200, 300 years. Right. And this new wave of progressives who are trying to change things in, in really radical ways, like they're like, no, we need change. We need to make things uh you know, better for, you know, X, Y, and Z. Whereas a lot of these liberals are like, no, we like, we should keep these ideas about free speech and, and, and uh, equality and, and X again, more X, Y, and Z. And so in that regard, I think they are actually being fairly conservative, which is kind of interesting, you know, especially since a lot of them have been pretty vehemently against conservatism, or at least in the religious aspect for such a long time. And so I'm wondering, you know, before we move into, and maybe before we take a break here, like what you think of that aspect between, you know, again, this is a, a conservative, you know, we're talking about conservatism in this episode, but what do you think, you know, how, how do you think those differences flesh out in the liberals that are holding on to certain liberal ideas today versus what the progressives are trying to do and trying to push a change? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, but I also think it's, it's really important to identify the change that's being pushed. You know, and it's more of there's there are different parts of or people that believe that change should either be bigger or smaller than what it is or should it has to be. And you have to deal with basically people that go really extreme on either side. It's like, you know, are there it's it's just basically an acknowledgement of, you know, it makes sense to me that there are certain you know populations of people, diverse populations that have, you know, the way that our structures are set up that have been designed to fail. You know, and what I feel like liberalism fails to do is they're all about like, oh, no, we want everybody to be equal. Like, and they obviously, you know, and they say that too. Like, what, what does Sam Harris say all the time? It's race should be as interesting as hair color where mm -hmm. nobody really cares uh, because that's not what matters. It's And again, it's it's down to the individual. They're talking about it's the person that matters. And, you know, you have, I can't remember um, who's the writer, Coleman Hughes, who wrote like, you know, he believes that people that are, are like the, these white people that are anti-racist on his behalf also feels like he's being labeled in a certain mind frame, mm -hmm. you know, and like he doesn't like that either. And so you have that aspect of it. But it's not that I disagree with that. I just feel like where they miss the line is that like there are like to, in my view, there are there is evidence of systematic things that have made it harder for these populations to be successful. And the the idea of liberalism is for the the random individual to be successful. So like acknowledgement of some of these, these gaps in the way that our system was designed that are limiting success for certain individuals and making change towards equalizing that to me makes sense. But I don't go as far as, as trying to identify or, or, or go as far as like, you know, for example, they talk about racial politics or, you know, trying to shame or there's all these different other tactics on the extreme side that I'm not necessarily saying for. So I feel like, when you're even talking about progressivism, there's that kind of breakdown and what chains being pushed. But, you know, something that you said that I kind of want to ask you about, because what you got me thinking about is not only did you just notice kind of like the connection between liberals being more conservative, but, you know, we're going to talk about this, but we're talking about Andrew Sullivan. I know we'll get to him soon, but the, in the article, you know, that we're going to talk about later, there's a part that I think that really um, I want to share. So, He's talking about, you mentioned him earlier, the Michael Oakeshott, mm -hmm. like you mentioned him earlier. So basically, uh, Sullivan makes a comment that he forgot to mention that when he's talking about his idiosyncratic conservative liberalism, that the radicalization of the woke left played a huge role in radicalizing the right in recent yeah. years and saying yeah. it was for good reason. And so 
you have this other paradox where you have a certain subset of the conservative uh, culture that it's, that's getting extremely more radical. Um, and they're also getting they're they're getting very stern, I guess. And, and I guess where Andrew Sullivan says, where I like this, where he doesn't call them the far right, he calls them the hard right uh, because yeah, of how like they're doubling term. down on yeah. tradition. Yeah, and I like the term too. So, like, what do you think about you know that aspect of it? The opposites, you know, of of these conservatives being radicalized by obviously the other side. Right. No, I I, I definitely it, it was something in reading that essay um, from Sullivan. It's a little bit. It's kind of old. It's about a month old now, I think. Uh, but in reading it, I, I definitely sort of saw the the problem that he was pointing to, and it's something that I think has been it's been more obvious as of late you know especially in the last four years where conservatives and and the republican party you look at them and you're like what what is happening what's happening to you guys like you know even with president bush you know like a lot of a lot of people didn't like president bush <laughs> for for some good reasons right and some obvious ones is that you know but president bush was not the trumpian party Right. You know, it was just it was very much like you were like, oh, yeah, this guy's like conservative. He's very Reagan like he's very much like his like his dad or or like um uh, or like Nixon. You know, so it, they made sense, you know, in the way that you know, we're going to talk about Nixon. There's too. a lot of interesting, fun facts about Nixon later on. So don't let me forget. But okay, I know good. that we yeah. should. But I, yeah, we'll wrap this up because before we get into famous conservatives, a.k.a. Nixon's in that category, we'll take a break. Yeah, definitely. Um uh, but yeah, I, you know, there is, um, it is interesting the direction that, uh, the, the conservatives have gone in, uh, because it definitely makes, as far as like tradition goes, it, it makes me feel like they aren't conservative anymore. And I, there's a part of me that is taken aback that, you know, by how Trumpism had hijacked the GOP and conservatives across uh, across the nation, and frankly, I mean across the Western world, right? Like the, there's a huge wave of populism, you know, both on the left, but you know, certainly uh, on the right, that is just uh, taking the world by storm. And it's like, what is what is happening? And I mean, there is a certainly tenets of conservatism and and religious conservative conservatism being propped up here, but it's more than that. You know, it is a might makes right. It is a, it doesn't care as long as we win attitude. And it is a big fuck you to establishments. And I don't know. It's become like a cultural like identity, which uh -huh. is really interesting. And, you know, if we're, if we're going to talk about kind of like Trump conservative, like, I feel like we should, there's another comment in that same article from Andrew Sullivan, by the way, this article is going to be in the show notes, you know, yes, and it's, a, yeah. it's, I think it's a book review of, um, you know, the, the war within conservatism and why it matters to all of us, um, when you're looking in the show notes, but he makes a comment that says, you know, and I, I want your thoughts on this because, and I quote, he says, modern conservatism is a vital counterbalance to liberalism as the Trump years have shown. He goes further to say liberalism has disappeared into a populist cult and refers to them as the hard right instead of the far right. And due to what Trump has done in their war and unfuck the establishment, basically. Yeah. That yeah. last part was not. It's just like the Trump no, is, and the Trump years of shown was the end of the quote. I should have said end quote. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's it. It's interesting because I think that. um I mean, what liberalism and what conservatism uh, has has fallen into 
it is, I think the, the establishment is a big part of it there where there is a recognition that our current institutions are failing us. And I think what progressives want to do, at least I think, you know, most of them, what progressives mostly want to do is try to like either help fix our institutions or take them to a place where they can obviously, um, you know, support everyone in a much more equal and just way. Whereas the modern, you know, populist conservatives and, and some liberals want to completely, you know, like flip the fucking monopoly table. You're like, no, fuck your park place. Like, I don't care how many hotels you have on it. I, I, I like, we're going to, we're going to destroy the shit because, but that's not what not I'm getting out of you. That's, uh, that's not what okay, I want well then, out of you. Then, okay. Then what are you getting at? Can you, can you be more clear here for me? Fine. I'll be, I'll be a little bit more clear. <laughs> I think it's interesting that he is choosing to, to explain, to think what Trump did was manipulate liberalism into a populist cult. So, because I, I feel that Trump's platform, he ran, you know, he ran on tradition, like law and order. He ran on, like, he, like he's always considered himself like a Christian man. He's even holding a Bible stuff. He's, he's, he talks about being against abortion. He, he, he was catering mm -hmm. very heavily or pandering necessarily is a better word. He was pandering to the conservative class. Of people, right. you know, and so I just feel that it's interesting that instead of basically saying that conservatism has been manipulated into a populist cult, he's almost saying that modern conservatism is a counterbalance to the liberalism that Trump has created. So I just, I just, in my opinion, I don't agree that liberalism, like, is what Trump manipulated. Well, it's difficult to say. I mean, I, I, I would, you know, uh, I'll be honest here. Um, I reached out to Andrew Sullivan to join us on this podcast and uh, we never heard anything back. So uh, Andrew, if you're listening, um, I hate you, but not really. Uh, <laughs> we'll email you this question. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, it'd be nice um, to know exactly what he, you know, what he meant, but uh, yeah, you know what, I think what he's, what he's talking about here and th you know, this may be a bit of a reach, but when you talk about liberalism and how it's um, turned into a bit of a populist cult, I don't, I don't see that the, the populist rhetoric necessarily it you know is being salient but i do think that the way in which the right and the left were pushed out to the extremes it left this middle ground where i think liberalism uh sort of resides in, in a lot of ways not the best of ways but it still resides there um liberalism was a place where people could go to like I don't know, like just say talking points and not really consider like where liberalism has failed a lot of people. Or you maybe, know? or maybe I guess thinking about it as you were talking, I, you, when you just said earlier, you mentioned that, you know, the, the IDW or mm -hmm. those that identify, they have these long, long conversation podcast formats and they're traditional, they're basically they're, they're liberals in the sense of they believe in liberalism and that, and you made a comment that, they are starting to sound more conservative, you know, by holding on to their liberal beliefs. And so right. maybe what he's trying to say here is the moderate conservatism, you know, is the counterbalance to liberalism because now the liberals, the original liberals, like they are sounding more conservative, you know, mm -hmm. as, as opposed to, to what people now, because obviously like liberals, a difficult term because it's been used now as a derogatory slang term toward, towards progressives. 
which is can get confusing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely can. <laughs> yeah. But um but yeah, no, I think this is a perfect space to go take a break and then when we get back I think so we too. can just yeah, talk about some some prominent figures and wrap this thing up. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh yeah, we will we will take a break and uh we will be right back here waiting waiting for you. <laughs> All right, guys, we'll see you after the break. Hey everyone, Josh and Ian here, and yes, I know, it's ad time, but we do want to thank our loyal listeners to the podcast, because without our seasoned bullshitters, we wouldn't really have this show. But, if you're like anybody, including us, I know that we hate ads, even though I am literally am one at this moment, we do want to be honest with you. We want to bring you more interesting and in-depth content, but we can't do it without your help. You know, so if you're listening to the show and you're enjoying what Ian and I are doing, like, really, even with Ian... We love what we're making. Here's a few ways that you can support us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for your support, Josh. I really, I really needed it. But you can subscribe to our website at www.necessarybspodcast.com so that you never miss a new episode and you get access to our monthly newsletter. You can follow us on social media over at Twitter, Instagram, and maybe Facebook, but let's be honest, probably not. All under the handle at NBS Podcast One, and that's the number one because we're the number one podcast. And most importantly, you can subscribe to one of several affordable tiers on our patreon starting as low as two dollars a month over at www.patreon.com slash nbs productions and look as we know it's been it's been a crazy year but if you do become a patron you'll get you know ad free early access to all of our episodes ian and i have created this patreon only exclusive show called the bullshit boulevard you might know them from our regular feed which you can write in questions now once a month and we'll answer them on the show amongst other topics yeah and supporting us on patreon would help us really grow the show such as bringing you exclusive merchandise like stickers and t-shirts that you can wear obnoxiously on your hairy backs and then adding more guests to the podcast for even greater discussions um, i even have a couple people in my mind right now that i'm reaching out to and finally if we could induct you into the hall of bullshit and you know you want to be in the hall of bullshit so with that it's probably a good deal all right ian should we should we get back to the show i mean yeah, let's get back to the yeah, show all right I'm sick of hearing us talk <laughs> all right Welcome back from the break, everyone. Yes, finally. <laughs> That's always funny. It never gets old. You know, I, I we're going to let listeners in. Let's let's do like before we kind of get on with with conservative figures and, and continuing this conversation. I want to do like a little share minute with our listeners here um, with our seasoned bullshitters <laughs> or our new people that decided to join us. So there's been some episodes where Ian and I have technical difficulties. So there's been weeks that have passed between <laughs> the first part of the episode and the second part of the episode. Now, <laughs> That's now, sure. you're, now, yeah, exactly. Now, this episode was relatively fast you know, maybe just a five minute, but, um, before we kind of pop back on to, to record the second half of this episode, I just want to say that I'm in a new office setup. Um, I have my computer and office desk and mic all set up nice. And I got a computer chair and, uh, let's just say that while we were in transition, one of the reasons why we took a break is that I was hunched over a TV tray and like my computer was, it was connected to the TV that was wall mounted. So my neck was arched up and I know these sound like first world problems, but, <laughs> but in the, but in the podcasting world, like it's just, it's just a beautiful moment, you guys. So I wanted to share with you that my setup is now good and I'm glad that we're back in action. No, definitely. Yeah. I mean, my setup has been 
relatively unchanged. Although for some reason, I'm sure some of our listeners notice this, our, our audio from episode 69, <laughs> where we're talking about Shakespeare, who was completely unsexy. Um, it was it was really off. I'm not sure what was going on with that. You know, technology is so fucking weird. Um, and the software that I record on is um, strange. I pay for it. You know, it's not free software, but it's it's um, it's just. I don't know. It's inconsistent, I, I suppose, sometimes. And, and I'm hoping uh, Josh will let me know, uh, frankly, because he's our uh, audio producer as well. Uh, and that's probably why I, it also sounds shitty because I'm know. not, you know, I will admit I'm an amateur. Like there's a few things that I can do and I can tweak stuff here and there. But, uh, you know, a lot of it has to be like the file that's being sent my way. And so obviously with, uh, you know, with Ian, you know, moving and us doing this remotely, there's, there's some hiccups. So our listeners, like, thank you for bearing with us. And, and trust me when you hear like sound, that's not quite up to par. We're aware. <laughs> right. Yeah, we know. Yeah. And, and frankly, the only, uh, the only way Josh, I can, I can relate to you as far as like the next train, uh, is, uh, I'm just going to say this. I got a new TV recently and like uh, the way that I've been playing it, like it's so fucking big, uh, the TV that is. And, uh, and like, I, <laughs> When I first sat in front of it, I just laughed because I'm like, oh, I have to look up a lot. Um, and so like I've had to like readjust like how I play uh, games because uh, I was just like, oh, yeah, this is like I'm totally not used to this. I can also just, like see more detail. It's like this giant fucking 70 inch 4K TV. And I'm like, oh, whoa, I didn't even know that was there, you know, sort of thing in, in that game. All right, Ian. So go ahead and put your anyway. balls back in your pants and let's talk about conservatives. <laughs> let's let's, let's yeah. get back into this. Um, you... Yeah, while my dick is in my hand. So right. anyway, um, speaking of uh, which, so th- I I really wanted to talk about um, a few prominent uh, conservatives throughout history because I think they're really important uh, when it comes to the movement uh, of it. There's going to be some familiar names uh, that that you hear as as we go along here, but and uh, Josh, I'll definitely get your perspective on some of their uh, some of their ideas as we Absolutely go through. Not. So it's not. Um, <laughs> just I'm just going to stay silent the entire time. Uh, so the uh, the first one that we have here is a man by the name of Edmund Burke, who lived in uh, who he was born in 1729 and died in 1797. So he's an old guy. Uh, he was a British statesman and philosopher born in Dublin, and he served as a member of Parliament between uh, 1766 and 1794 in the House of Commons of Great Britain for the Whig Party after moving to London in 1750. So he was a proponent of underpinning virtues with manners in society and of the importance of religious institutions uh, for the moral stability and good of the state. These views were expressed in his book, A Vindication of Natural Society. He criticized the actions of British government towards the American colonies, including its taxation policies, but he also supported the rights of the colonists to, preserve, uh, to resist metropolitan authority, although he opposed the attempt to achieve independence. So that's interesting. And then his, so he, he, literally, yeah. he literally was like, look, man, I get it. I understand it. Like taxation without representation. Got it. Um, but you still should not be on your own. <laughs> that's yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like, no, no, no. Like I, I get it. You're like, you like, you don't want to pay those kind of taxes. Sure. But like, you're still great Britain. <laughs> you know, it's actually kind of interesting. Um, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I promise I'll make it quick. Like, I don't know if uh, I was listening to one of Sam Harris's recent podcasts that he had a couple like military veterans on there discussing the Capitol riots. And, sure. you know, he was talking about history and, and reactions to that. And he actually brought up the, you know, the Boston Tea Party and, and uh, the 1700s, the, the founding, basically the, the, uh, the journey of American Revolution. And he talks sure. about how, like, you know, when 
when the British Parliament found out that you know, all these guns had been taken, and I think it was like Waterloo or something, where all the the first like big bloodshed was done, he was saying that like actually in that moment in time, you really can't. He was saying that you can't fault the British because you know like very much so like what people what America does when you assess threats and your goal is to try to you know de-escalate or, or take away a threat. Like if we were to learn to, he made the comment that if the American government was to learn today that there was a fraction of people with a stockload of weapons. Like we would probably respond to that super similar um, as the oh, British yeah. had res- has responded to us, and I thought that was just an interesting, you know, interesting point there. No, definitely, uh, you know, like the idea of, of of revolution and and fighting against tyranny is really it's really strange when you put it into modern contexts, and um, and I, I think it's quite Persian actually, Josh, that you mentioned that you know when it comes to uh, conservatives and the. Uh, and the uh, rise of the Capitol on January 6th. It's definitely, it's definitely an interesting parallel. Um, so in Burke's uh, book, Reflections on the Revolution of France, he asserted that the revolution was destroying the fabric of good society and traditional institutions of state and society and condemned the persecution of the Catholic Church as a result of France. Ah, there's so the, the conservatism. Yeah, there, I was wondering where it is. <laughs> so this led to, the, uh, to his becoming the leading figure within the conservative faction of the Whig Party, which he dubbed the Old Whigs as opposed to the pro French Revolution, New Whigs, of course. Um, and in the 19th century, <laughs> Burke was pra- <laughs> yeah, Burke was praised by both conservatives and liberals. Subsequently, in the 20th century, he became widely regarded as a physical founder or philosophical founder of modern conservatism. So, a lot of, of uh, conservative philosophers um, link back to Burke as far as their philosophical influences and the. Um, you know the 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 push that he had against revolutionary ideas. It's like mm, it's like I don't know. Are you doing that for the right reason? Should you really be doing that? And like I, I'll link uh, his reflections on the revolution in France. I read it in a political ideology uh, course back in university, and I mean he was like brutal towards the French revolutionaries. I mean, he was basically calling them children uh, in their pursuits of revolution. And it was really interesting, actually, like the parallels between his ideas on the French, on the French and Americans and how like we were doing revolution in a lot of the same ways, Um, you know, a lot of different ways, of course, but like how you know, when we look at the American revolution, it was like, Oh no, we're doing it for, for justice and for, you know, uh, taxation without representation like all that sort of thing and we look at the french it's like oh you guys are just like unhappy with things and like you guys are just being piss poor children or something like that uh in his eyes and so it's just really interesting to see how that uh pops up there no yeah and josh is not going to say anything about it (laughs) no i mean i mean you pretty much covered it like i just wanted to make that first part i mean as you could as you could see here like his right there the 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 basically the destroying the fab there it is destroying the fabric of good society and traditional institutions of the state combined with he condemned the prosecution of the catholic church which i don't know the catholic church is uh guilty of doing some shady shit too uh so it's like i feel that it's, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's just it's just interesting i mean obviously you can see the the connections between obviously why each philosopher before him or after him, I guess is, is following suit. And, and these, again, because it's a, it's a, it's based on tradition. So obviously, right. You know, it's, it makes sense that it's going to follow that you're going to connect the dots and that linear progression. 
especially when it comes to revolution, like, you know, and in the early modern period of Europe, it's like, no, we should really uphold the monarchy because it's good for you guys. I promise. And it's, it's, it's um, actually fascinating too, like the, the changes. Cause if you even look at the American civil war, you know, and it's mm-hmm. like, you can look at who one could view that or say that the South technically like tried to revolt. They tried to break off. They tried to have their own little revolution. Um, I mean, they did, you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's not definitely. traditionally viewed that way, but like, you're right. It's exactly what it is. So that's also an interesting parallel because that obviously has some more connections to, to conservative thinking as opposed because they felt that there was breaking of tradition. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so the next conservative uh, thinker that we have here is Michael Oakeshott, who we've uh, mentioned before uh, in reference to Andrew Sullivan's article. He was born in 1901 and died in 1990. He was an English philosopher and political theorist who wrote about philosophy of, his, of philosophy of history, philosophy of religion, aesthetics, a philosophy of education, and philosophy of law. So he published his first book, Experience and Its Modes, in 1933. He noted that the book owed much to Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel and uh, F.H. Bradley. Don't worry about Hegel. He's uh, a lot of nonsense. Uh, So the book argued that our experience is usually modal in the sense that we always have a governing perspective on the world be it practical or theoretical. There are various theoretical approaches that one might take to understand the world. Natural science and history, for example, are separate modes of experience. It is a mistake, he declared, to treat history as if it ought to be practiced on the model of the on the model of the natural sciences. Philosophy, however, is not a modal interest. At this stage of his career, Oakshaw saw philosophy as the world seen subspecie aeterniasis. Uh, my Latin is really p- piss poor, so forgive me here. It literally means under the aspect of eternity. So free from presuppositions, whereas science and history and the practical mode of rely on certain assumptions. Later, Oakeshott adopted a pluralistic view of various modes of experience with philosophy, just one voice among the others that retained its self-scrutinizing character. So I know a lot of that was kind of jargonistic there, but basically what Oakeshott and his philosophy was talking about is that experience is a kind of there are clear separations when it comes to experience and how we understand the world. And one of his big influences was Hegel. Uh, We don't have time to get into Hegel because uh, he and his philosophy is just a lot of a big fucking mess. If you, if you, if any of our listeners have go and listen to the phenomenology or read the phenomenology of spirit, then good, good luck to you. But uh, basically, you know, it's basically, long story short is experience is is very much separated in in certain modes and the reason why he's a such a huge uh uh influence in in conservatism is that he very much pushed this when it comes to understanding history and science and that we can't separate those things necessarily uh when we're trying to understand uh experience so um, I don't know if you have anything to say about him, Josh. I feel like um, it's just the beginning seed of one, you know, one aspect of conservatism that I, we haven't really talked about is this, this, mm-hmm. this, I guess fear of change is not really the, I guess fear of rapid change is a better way to put this. Uh, there's sure. a sense of, of, you know, conservatives believe that change needs to be moderated and controlled in small doses. And I feel like, you know, this, this fear of, of change, which is interesting to me because obviously with progressivism, it's all about change. And for me, I feel like humans, we just change times, change people change. We all change. Um, but I feel like this guy is literally just, that's where the seeds of, of this fear of, of rapid change. I feel like is starting to take hold. 
Right. And one of the things that uh, Oakshot has talked about um, is how, and I think uh, our next uh, conservative talks about it a little bit as well, is how, you know, change, it's, it, you know, change isn't necessarily bad when it comes to human nature and society. It's, but why the change is happening, right? So uh, you look at progressive ideology and it's like, okay, well, we need to, uh, we need to improve our situation or we need to um, move away from some kind of imperfection. But what conservatives like Oakshot will ask is like, well, is that change actually doing something for the better when our previous way of life is actually doing us just fine? And now that doesn't mean that we should just stop right there and like, okay, no more questions need to be asked. But like, I think he's really asking us to just like stop and ask like, Wait a second. Is this improvement really an improvement? Could you imagine, so that's like, if that worked in a debate class? You're like, it's you're like progressivism versus <laughs> conservatism. They give this huge speech. The conser- the conservative gets up there and he goes, uh, "Don't fix what ain't broken." Thank you so much. Don't fix it. Yeah, yeah. It depends. It depends. I don't. I don't know if that would do very well. Um, and we can end uh, this episode. I'm sure, some people. There do. it is. That's right. conservative philosophy <laughs> in a nutshell. Yeah. Don't fix what ain't broke. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. That's the title <laughs> <laughs> of this episode. But um, no. So there's a couple more uh, conservative uh, thinkers that I want to get through, and one of them was uh, uh, Roger Scruton. Uh, so he was born in 1944 and died last year, actually, in 2020. He was an English philosopher and writer who specialized in aesthetics and political philosophy, particularly in the furtherance of traditionalist conservative views. Big surprise. Best known for <laughs> supporting uh, his writing and support of conservatism, Scruton's intellectual heroes were Edmund Burke, uh, Coleridge, Dostoevsky, Hegel, Ruskin, and T.S. Eliot. His third book, The Meaning of Conservatism, which he called a somewhat Hegelian defense of Tory values in the face of their betrayal by the free marketeers. Oh, uh, was so there's the hierarchical there, argument again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, there, yeah, it's propping up everywhere. So he said uh, for uh, blighting his academic career, he supported Margaret Thatcher, big surprise, while remaining skeptical of her view of the market as a solution to everything. But after the Falklands War, he realized that she recognized uh, that the self-identity of the uh, of the country was at stake, but its revival was a political task. So Scruton wrote in Gentle Regrets that he found several of Burke's arguments in reflections on the revolution in France persuasive. Although Burke was writing about revolution and not socialism, Scruton was persuaded that, as he put it, the utopian promises of socialism are accompanied by an abstract vision of the mind that bears little relation to the way most people think. So that one was specifically for you, Josh. Uh, So Burke was also (laughs) convinced uh, Burke also convinced him that there was no dis- uh, direction to history, no moral or spiritual progress, um, which is a, pretty Hegelian. And we could talk uh, talk about that a little bit, uh, maybe a later, uh, later episode. But Hegel basically thought that like history was over um, and there's no actual progress to be made. But that's uh, something neither here nor there. So uh, people thought that uh, or rather uh, Burke and. And Scruton thought that people think collectively toward a common goal only during crises 
uh, such as war, and that trying to organize society this way requires a real or imagined enemy. Hence, Scruton wrote the strident tone of socialist literature. Scruton was also persuaded by Burke's arguments about, let's about break this the down social a bit. contract. Let's, just, let's talk about that section for a little sure. bit. Sure. Let's break up your reading sure. a little bit, because, man, I'm yeah. starting to fall asleep over here. So the... <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know, I know that. Um, it's more of your reading. Uh, so the, the, the when you think collectively towards a common goal, such as war or organized society that requires a, a uh-huh. real or imagined enemy. Okay, so would you think that this is also a critique against, you know, like anarchal structures or possibly libertarian structures, you know, not just socialistic. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's, it's essentially just, and again, this is where I think this is fascinating because I feel like, you know, we, we briefly touched on realism, but often realism, I feel like is used as a shield. You know, conservatives mm-hmm. often throw that out as a response to things that are interesting. And and I don't know, I guess the the back end, the, the criticism of socialism is just interesting because defining terms like who's defining family and who's defining values and meanings. And and like, I don't know, I guess this like it's it's can I ask you a question like, would you would you just do a thought of it? And imagine if we lived in a society where where a job, you know, like was not propped up and valued as much as it was that you would trust that the human race would have purpose or find purpose without forced labor. Um, it's just like, a, it's and you're right. It's idealistic. And I feel like, you know, even here from this guy and of course, 2020 just passed, but 1944, historically speaking, you see a huge conservative shift from the 1950s on. And so you're starting to see that with his, his approach, the anti. Yeah. I mean, Right, you're right. I think I think the big thing here to take away and uh, be, before we move on is that conservatives and the conservatism that somebody like Scruton and Burke and all the rest are propping up is that order in some way is for the benefit of human society. And what there are specific critiques of socialism I don't think it's 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 fleshed out here that well, uh, frankly. You know, it's just I mean, you know, there's only so of much I can, not. I can. I mean, get we've been a, speaking, uh, you know, in in general yeah. terms, you know, because that's what right. we are. We you know, we're scratching surfaces, right? Um, uh, but you know, but the thing, you know, the the critique against socialism is very much a critique against the established. Uh, or, or rather, it is saying that like socialism is a is a move to 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 move away from the established order because the order order works so well, right? And what's interesting about this is that like this is why precisely why I'm not 100 percent conservative in, in in any way is that order can only get you so far. Most people uh, can only handle so much, right? If you think about it, I mean, like you know, think about traffic. You know, Josh, this is you love these traffic metaphors. Um, you know, when you're sitting there mm-hmm. at a light and, you know, when you were, uh, you know, it's the, the right. The light is red and you're sitting there at a right turn. Now, the law states it, it, it does that, you know, if there's no traffic and you've come to a complete stop, then you can actually turn that right on a red light. Um, but there are some people who are out there who are very much like, no, 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 the light is red. I can't go. You know, I can't go. But most people just like, oh, there's nobody coming. I'm going, (laughs) you know, and I think that really shows that there's only so much power that you can have over over most people. And what conservatism, I think, tries to do and a lot in in some ways more effective, some ways less. So it's just like, okay, where can we find order over what people just do on their own? And it's. I don't know. 
this is why I actually don't like reading about a lot of these people because anytime they push any critique towards something like socialism, for example, what you you were you were saying a minute ago is is absolutely right. Like they're doing so little to define what socialism is, for example. Like in, at least in this instance, they're just like, okay, well, what's what's the counterfactual here? Like, do you have anything to uh, to fight against here? Because it seems that. You know, you're just throwing socialism there because it's, I don't know, it's just a. And it, also, you know, if you believe that we're going to be chaotic on. in order, how how can we not be? Or if you're going to believe we're going to be chaotic without order, I can't function without order. How do you know that there isn't sort of that same drive to cause chaos within order? I mean, you know, there's right, there's that sure. argument, the cat that uh, the argument of you know, oh, rules are meant to be broken, so we created rules, and therefore they can be broken, therefore we will break them. Um, you know, I believe, think about it, like with the whole judicial system, I think every rule that we've ever been created, there's been somebody out there that has broken that rule, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. granted they, right. they pay consequences and that's where, you know, we learn the consequences of the, of breaking those. And so that's how you can have somewhat structure because the average person is going to go, yes, those consequences are not worth those actions, but mm-hmm. it doesn't mean to say that you know, what is possible you know, you're defining something. You're, it's just a, I guess, how do I say this? It's just a broad statement. It's a really broad statement just to say that like, oh, this is, it wouldn't work. But one could argue that it's equally broad to say that it would. Right. Yeah, for sure. And again, that's why, that's why it is, you know, difficult for me to, to buy into a lot of these conservative arguments. But anyway, let, let me, speaking of conservative arguments, let me finish up uh, Scruton's uh, ideas here, and then we can move into our, our last uh, conservative thinker here. So in, in Scruton's book, Arguments for Conservatism, so he marks out certain areas in which philosophical thinking is required of conservatism to be intellectually persuasive. So he argued that human beings are creatures of limited and local affections, uh, territorial loyalty is at the root of all forms of government where law and liberty reign supreme. Every expansion of jurisdiction beyond the frontiers of the nation state leads to a decline in accountability. And the book defines postmodernism as the claim that there are no grounds for truth, objectivity, and meaning. And the conflicts between views are therefore nothing more than the contest of power. So Scruton argued that while the West is required to judge other cultures in their own terms, Western culture is adversely judged as judged as ethnocentric and racist. He wrote that the very reasoning which sets out to destroy the ideas of objective truth and absolute value impose political correctness as absolutely blinding and cultural relativism as objectively true. So this is something I actually I really wanted your, your response to, Josh, before we move into our last uh, thinker here is that he is throwing a lot of shade at the sort of new left and the and the postmodernists here and what they talk about uh, when it comes to critiques of, of of the West and a lot of it that I I can completely see why he's um, why he's adverse to these critiques and I think you know my uh, my views on that have become quite quite clear. Uh, on this podcast, you know, when it comes to the West and and postmodern postmodernism and everything like that. However, this is that very issue that I again why I can't identify as being conservative is because like this idea of objective truth. While while I very much think that as um, as philosophically inclined people should pursue the truth, this is one of those things where. You know, we've talked about propaganda. We've talked about social media. We've talked about conspiracy theories and the role of truth within politics many times before. And I'm just not so sure 
that we can continue this relationship with the truth in the way the conservatives want us to. What do you think about that? Like, do you think that we are in for some kind of hurt, you know, because the conservatives are very much holding on to uh, these old ideas about what's true? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I don't know. Like for me, I've always reviewed religious people as like people that can't see the forest through the trees. You know, it's you just we you hold on to these these high beliefs that there's a power that created this thing. And don't get me wrong, like you know, I am again having a problem with this because maybe that's not what he's meaning by objective truth. But in the sense of conservative patterns, you know, who believes in an objective truth of creation? That's that's those are religious people. That's very fantastical thinking. And as you're right, you know, philosophy is designed to look more towards the truth. Philosophy never claims that there is an objective truth. Um, you know, at least certain philosophers argue that there isn't. So there's actually a debate about it in philosophy, which debate obviously could lead to to more things being known. You know, it's a cycle. Um, and if you think that something sure. is objectively true, there's no way to debate that. There's no way to grow. Like there's no way to critique, which you can't kind of improve. I'm just hung up on the fact that he just said that, and this is going to be the only shade I'm probably going to throw is that, that philosophical thinking is required if conservatism is to be intellectually persuasive. I feel like that is so true because that's where, in my opinion, uh, the conservatism is breaking down today. Like there's not uh -huh. really many philosophical footholds for the actions that they're taking. You know, you know, for example, um, like fiscal conservatives and, and I can't remember that one guy. I'll, I'll talk to Ian after the show and, and maybe we'll put it in the show notes, but there's this one guy that basically was arguing about cancel culture, um, and said that he hates that companies are doing this and people are getting too sensitive. And the very next day he tweeted an, uh, an article saying that, that <laughs> target is going to continue to require people to wear masks in all their locations. And he just wrote boycott target. Um, and it's just hilarious to me that where I think conservatism falls down is that the minute that something is kind of inconvenient to the style of their thinking, they, they basically find a way to justify attacking that sort of function of it, not realize that it's, it's a center proponent of what their philosophy is. So I feel like, I guess, I don't know what I'm trying to say is that I feel the philosophy of conservatism has been detached a little bit from people that yeah. call themselves conservatives today. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And, you know, it's I mean, it's funny. We'll move on to our last thinker here in a moment. But what I tend to see is that intellectualization is so difficult for people to do that it just pisses them off. Right. I mean, think about it, Josh, like you, you probably know what it's like to be in a conversation with a couple people where I don't know, like somebody makes an offhand comment about you know, it doesn't matter what it is. And you, t you, you poke and you prod, you know, a little bit. You're like, Oh, what do you mean by that? And like, people just get pissed off, you know, or like they'll call you names or what have you. And it's just like, Whoa, 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 dude. Like, I'm just, I'm just trying to talk these ideas out. Like what's going on. Like there's no need to get, you know, be eccentric all up in here. And what um, makes it worse is and, that it gets perceived as the sense of pompousness or arrogance. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, I tell people I'm not trying to, yeah, it, you know, for me, I just, I go, you know, I, when I say things like I'm starting to realize that, that there is so much more going on than just my perception of the world. And I should try to expand the way that I view the world. And so try to understand or, or show empathy or try to relate and then connect that back to my own thinking. People just stop at, this is the way I think. And that's it. 
you know, you know, and it's like, so like, even when you try to make that link, they look at you like, oh, you're ippity dippity, you know, you're like, what? You're like, no, I'm literally just trying to ask questions. And then, you know, and then it gets to this, it's just, a, it's just a spiral sometimes, unfortunately. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I think too, um, the, the idea about, you know, conservatives and their relationship to cancel culture and how, you know, the blame has, has sort of shifted across political lines. I think that's something I want to talk about that in a, in an upcoming episode, just as a little bit of a teaser here, because cancel culture, while we've talked about the uh, sort of the goings ons in uh, in that culture, um, there's some other stuff that I think that we could definitely flesh out. Well, yeah, too, because um, that's going to be fascinating because, you know, you could look at elements of the fact that, like, these things are people are exercising their right of free speech. And if a private company to see, if is motivated enough to change it, then, like, that's their choice. And you, know, you could take a, a peek at that. We could be upset that what's happening. But, you know, there's obviously different ways to view that. That's going to be an interesting conversation. But let's talk about Andrew Sullivan. So we we yeah. talked about his we talked about his article that he's written. We've we've mentioned him on the podcast several times. So for those seasoned bullshitters, quite a few, will, quite a few times. Yeah, yeah, you will you will have heard this man's name. Yeah, Andrew Sullivan. I I am quite the fan of his. It was really funny. Just a little bit of backstory about me uh, is that I first saw him on Real Time with Bill Maher. And if anybody's familiar with uh, the Real Time Show, is that is you know Bill Maher is this comedian uh, who. You know, has on, you know, he's very left wing and, you know, has on a lot of left wing people to talk, but he also has on a lot of right wing people to talk as well. And a lot of times there can be um, some great uh, back and forth, some, you know, pretty passionate back and forths uh, in conversations with, you know, conservatives or, or liberals or progressives. And it can get heated sometimes and it's, it's, it can be fun to watch. And I first saw Andrew Sullivan on there and he is this, you know, I mean, I'll give some of his background, but he's this conservative Catholic gay guy from uh britain who is very passionate about his views and when i first saw him on there i'm like dude who the hell is this guy like and, and this is me when i'm like living in portland and i'm like i'm a progressive and josh <laughs> i'm sure you can i'm sure you can imagine me uh as that person uh, <laughs> but you know i was like who the who the fuck is this guy like what is he talking about and then like the more and more that i watch him i'm like oh man like this guy is really effectual like he he is smart um, and he, he's got a lot of interesting to say things to say, even though I like can disagree with a lot of things, um, about him. Um, I mean, I don't know what your relationship to Andrew, Andrew Sullivan was and how you heard about him, Josh, but I, I mean, never heard about him until you mentioned like you've literally, oh, okay. when we started talking about things, him, so. concert, okay, gotcha. Yeah. All right, well, not just the podcast. It was actually, it was actually pre podcast when we used to just have our random conversations and we decided, oh, right. like, yeah, yeah we, we, we're doing this <laughs> we so much, we might as well, yeah, we're doing this so yeah. much, we might as well just put it out in the world. Um, but that was kind of when I was first introduced to him. Right. So, um, yeah, so for some background here, you know, Sullivan, he was born in 1963 he, as a, uh, he's a British American author, editor, and blogger. Uh, he's a political commentator and former editor of the New Republic and the author or editor of six books. He started a political blog, The Daily Dish, in 2000 and eventually moved uh, his blogs to platforms including uh, Time, The Atlantic, and The Daily Beast. From 2016 to 2020, Sullivan was a writer at New York Magazine. His letter, uh, his newsletter, The Weekly Dish, was launched in July 2020. So Sullivan says his conservatism is rooted in his Roman Catholic background and in the ideas of the British political philosopher Michael Oakeshott, who we previously talk, talked about. 
So in 2003, he wrote that he was no longer able to support the American conservative movement as he was disaffected with the Republican Party's continued uh, continued rightward shift on social issues concerning uh, the George W. Bush era. So Sullivan describes himself as a conservative and is the author of The Conservative Soul. Uh, he has a he has supported number a number of traditional libertarian positions, favor, favoring limited government and opposing social interventionist measures such as affirmative action. However, on a number of cons, uh, concert, uh, oh my god, I can't even talk right now. Controversial public issues, including same sex marriage, social uh, security, progressive taxation, anti discrimination laws, the Affordable Health Care Act, the United States government's use of torture and capital punishment. He has taken positions not typically shared by conservatives in the United States. And in 2012, he said that the catastrophe of the Bush-Cheney years all but exploded the logic of neoconservatism and its domestic partnership, uh, domestic partner in crime, supply-side economics. So I'm going to sort of skip over um, uh a lot of this, you know, because it's fairly self-explanatory. Uh, but Sullivan is an interesting character, and I think it really c- comes out in his essay that we were talking about earlier, Josh. Uh, what it, was it? The war within conservatism and why it matters to us all, because he is sort of lambasted and uh, quite often uh, by the right and the left for being this kind of guy who flip flops back and forth. Uh, you know, between conservatism and like liking aspects of liberalism or libertarianism. And this is why I think we can really flesh out uh, the rest of the episode with why conservatives nowadays maybe aren't really all that conservative. I'm sure. Because, and Andrew Sullivan actually goes hard on that. Like one of the things he talks yeah. about in that piece is, you know, I wrote this down and said it was good. It says when he, he's explaining the two broad moods of conservatism, I thought it was hilarious because he's like, and one of the mood is a, an attachment to the world that's hard to let go of. And uh, we resist changes that are too drastic. And the other um, is an attachment to or uh, sorry, and an attachment to once was. And he goes, the other mood is skeptical, defensive, pragmatic, and is rooted in sometimes inexplicable love of country or tradition like, like he's even somehow almost kind of poking fun in a sense um at a certain moods that have kind of more of uh, adopted or you know in the sense he's kind of poking that they root they're rooted in tradition and they're actually rooted in real uh, situations but they've just been kind of taken really to the extreme yeah absolutely and i think you know somebody what sullivan represents is I, as much as I've listened to Sullivan, I think he is one of these guys who is just a true conservative. Like he follows all of the tenets, you know, for the most part. Um, and he recognizes sort of what we, we talked about earlier when it comes to traditional marriage and gay marriage um, being legalized in the United States in 04 is that there is plenty of room within the conservative philosophical movement. Uh, for family to be not relegated to gender, right, and and gender's roles within the family, where you know because he's a gay man. I mean, I don't know, I don't, I, I don't know. If he's married to another man. I, you know, it just doesn't really matter. But you know, like the fact is, is that tradition is good, yes, but like it doesn't have to deal with all these sort of radical views that we think of modern conservatives having now being pushed into this populist realm, and. I guess, you know, this sort of brings me to this question, Josh, that I that I want to talk to you about. And hopefully we can figure out maybe what's going on here before we end the episode, <laughs> you know, uh, in, you know, in an hour and a half. <laughs> I think 
what's really interesting right now in the culture and and folks you know that are listening we will be conservative uh, uh talking about progressivism uh next so we so we're not going to leave you know one half of the conversation completely uh completely unspoken but right now conservatives are taking a bad rap you know, for being linked to the populism of, of Trump. Right. And I think for good reason, right. You know, like there are a lot of conservatives who just jumped on the, you know, jumped on the Trump bandwagon. They're like, Hey, yeah, fuck the liberals. Right. Um, but there are still conservatives who were just like, no, we've like, we've had the same views for, for years now. We don't like Trump. We don't like what he's about, but people still don't like us. And I think there is an instinct from people on the left of, you know, like logically, to push against conservatism, not as not as inoperable or or unpragmatic for the country, but as morally wrong. And this is something that I'm really I really can't wrap my head around because somebody like Sullivan, for example, like I listen to this guy and like he makes so much fucking sense anytime anytime I listen to Sullivan and or read him. And I'm like, I like, the, you know, granted, like I'm, I'm definitely more conservative inclined than you are, Josh. But like, I, I think it, he's really moderate and like really rational. Um, and then I see conservatives like, you know, people like Tucker Carlson or Dave Rubin, for example. My God, that guy, uh, you know, who like moved into this Trump camp and who and com- are completely populist now. And I get why people on the left are bo- are poo pooing them, you know, like they, they, they're fucking stupid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. But so, Josh, I mean, I guess my question is to you, like, why why is it so hard to uh, refrain from the instinct of calling conservatives immoral when people who are taking the conservative movement just aren't conservative anymore? This is sort of my, you know, critique with the left and, and not being liberal anymore. Like, I know the sort of uh, there's a lot I'm throwing at you here, but like. How, how, where do we stop? Where can we draw the line between like, okay, you're a conservative, you just have some philosophical views or, and now you're more a monster. Where is that line? Yeah. I, I don't know, Ian, because there's, there's definitely aspects that I'm sympathetic to. However, I just feel that I, it, it's hard because I don't, I definitely don't go as far as to say that conservatism is, is immoral or those that are that identify themselves with it are immoral, but I get, that there are a bunch of people on the left that do. Um, I just think that it's, it's more of what I do is I just get bothered by a complete disacknowledgement of, of the way that our history is. And they say that they're rooted in tradition, but they won't even look back at some of the, the things that, that have happened in our country and acknowledging that the, the things are not the same as they were. Like, you know, one of the things I was going to talk about is that, you know, during my research in history, what I found is that libertarianism shares aspects of a conservatism, but without having the influence of, of religious-based morality. You know, and it's, yeah. there is, if you look back at history... More secular. Yes, and if you look back at history, like a lot of conservatives, they were, they were upset with the idea of social programs uh, during the New Deal. Um, they were upset when LBJ took office, when he had his mission against civil rights. Um, and apparently there's been a link between conservatism spreading throughout, uh, spreading into Republican ideology, especially during that time, during with LBJ. And then it moves forward and you have, you know, people like Nixon, who's, we mentioned earlier, who's a conservative that was elected. However, you know, it's, it shows that Nixon is actually more about being popular because they said, funny enough, 
With Nixon came the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act. Um, there were safety regulations put on cars and planes. Uh, so it's like there was a lot of high government I think we even got the EPA out of the Nixon administration. Yes. Right? And so like, yes. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of stuff that Nixon did, even though he identified as a conservative, uh, you know, was very, was, was very kind of progressive for the time, you know. And then you even go further. You look at Reaganomics. You know, you have Reagan in the 80s and his idea of like, oh, no, the rich will take care of the poor. Like, that's how it needs to be. Good. And again, that's very hierarchical. You know, like now that I'm thinking about it, he's he's basically saying, no, you can trust in these people that because theoretically, look at it. Like if you look at American <laughs> culture, you know, well, not in that rude way, but if you look at American culture, you know, the way that it is now, one could make the argument or the connection that the the rich are kind of our version of royalty. Oh, um, sure. You yeah. know, like especially even in, in fandom and celebrities and stuff like that. It's kind of like our version of that. And so there's connections made there. And. I just think that it's it's fascinating to me that he's you know I just am, I just don't come from a place of religion my brain just doesn't work that way you know like I'm very skeptical of of that element of it which is the foundation of it so I think that you know what happens is is that you know a long-winded way of answering your question is I feel that people are irked because we try to acknowledge certain differences that we feel can benefit everybody. And it's not just a dis like what happens with conservatives, they don't just disagree. You know, they also say that like that is wrong. <laughs> and then they also kind of like hold this <laughs> negative perception of the other side. And and it's I feel like it's just the reason why it's propelled forward is because it's just a vicious cycle of each side doing it to each other. And we're all just doubling down. And I think that it gets, you know, on certain extremes, it gets further and further away. And, you know, I think maybe what Andrew Sullivan's trying to say is like with moderate conservatism or actual liberalism or all these other factions that we are so focused on you know, each extreme on each side that there's this weird gap in the center, you know, that, that we're realistically speaking, probably the majority of us live. Sure. Yeah. You know, I think too, even we talked about this before on the podcast where conservatives uh, from the left's perspective are viewed a lot of the times, especially in the wake of Trump as sort of moral monsters. But then when conservatives go and do, uh, in turn, is called people who are liberal or who or who ha- hold some type of progressive views as children, you know. And I think that's really interesting, you know. In no, the, but Ian, we too, look about at the religious factors too. Edmund it's Burke. also it's all like if you want to like let's talk about abortion for example. Abortion is a topic mm-hmm. that a lot of conservatives and a lot of Republicans they try to take the route that that it is uh, immoral. It's immoral what we're doing. To give sure. people the right of that. So th- there's certain elements, too, where they also view the other side as being immoral. Um, no, you, no you're, abs- you're definitely right about that. Yeah, you're definitely right about that. But I do think that is interesting if you're looking at today, you know, in 2021, you know, where we you, you, conservatives or, you know, the Tucker Carlson's of the world will call, you know, anybody who says that, like, hey, black people, you know, shouldn't be uh, persecuted by the police as much. And they're like, oh, well, you're such a libtard. Right. Like, what? Or, but it's also weird too, <laughs> because mo- modern conservatism is also has this weird attachment to this like patriarchal freedom. Like it's sure. Uh, I don't know. Like, and it's like, great, this... Josh, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Oh, yeah. But there's like this weird nationalist sense of freedom. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the nationalism is weird. Like a little gross. That's leading into, yeah, the nationalism <laughs> you know? that's bleeding into the conservative uh, field. That's also bizarre. And maybe that's off-putting because it's like, I don't know. The best example I heard is, is 
you know, you, sh- you, sh- you shouldn't be proud of your country for what it is. You should be proud of your country for what it does. So it's like, and like, that's like the true definition or the difference between patriotism that's kinda, and nationalism. That's weird. Like that makes, that makes me feel weird. Like hearing that. Why? Because you know, like, it's, it's, it's like an inverted, like saying of what, what was the, uh, the Kennedy quote It's like, you know, don't ask what you can do for your country or no, don't ask don't what ask your country, your country can, can, do can do for you. Well, ask no, think about it. I've been, I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been thinking about like, that's how I see the split between, between patriotism and nationalism where patriotism goes like, you know, for example, there's a lot of people that are against American imperialism, you know, like for example, you know, like people, some people are upset because Joe Biden just bombed Syria. And I now I know that the conservatives are really latching <laughs> onto that, which is also funny too. Lots because, of people have bombed Syria, Josh. Yep. I know. But like, <laughs> but what's funny is like the conservatives latch onto that and they're like, look, look, he's not even, he's not even giving you what you want. You're like, what? Like you didn't care about these issues at all. And now because like right. somebody else at is all. in office. <laughs> yep. At all. Like not, not a little bit. Now somebody else is in office that does all you're like is look, they're not doing that. What's, you know, so it's for me, it's like clear. It's, it's clear. Mo- it's like fear mongering and propaganda. And it's weird too, because actually, because I feel like what modern conservatives are doing, which I'd like your opinion on this. They almost like blame. They think that the left is fear mongering, <laughs> you know, like, especially when it comes to the aspect of the virus, right. right? They think that the virus, but at the same time, they cannot really see that in their own right, that like, they think that their freedom is being taken from them, which is a fear tactic. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, I don't know. It's, it's very, it's, it's very confusing, right? Like, how do you draw the lines anymore? Like, who is what that's what i mean frankly i mean that's why the conservative you know the the political spectrum is really hard uh to be reliable anymore uh when it comes to understanding where people's agendas or or motives are um because you know it's just like it is the lines are so blurred i know i'm just like repeating myself but you know if, again like i think the clear example is to look at modern conservatives looked at what they stood for 10, 15 years ago, and then look at how many of them voted for Trump. Trump is not a conservative. Trump is barely, uh, I mean, he's a populist, right? But like Trump, Trump is barely a human being, you know? So like, (laughs) you know, how do you, how do you vote? How do you vote for somebody like that? I mean, you're right. I mean, he's definitely a populist. And I would say that he pandered to the conservative nature, but he pandered to the, like the, the parts of it that are, I don't know. He pandered to the parts. Well, I think of he pandered to the he, religious parts, right? Probably. Right. I mean, right. what do you agree? Yeah. Which, you know, again, like the populist would do, you find like the, the, the common thread between all of them, you know, and, and that's what you start to pander right. to. Yeah. So but, anyway, Josh, I mean, I, I, I'm sure we could meander even further and, and talk about how, you know, Trump is a Nazi or Andrew Sullivan, uh, is smarter than the rest of us. But, um, what, what do you think, Josh? I mean, you want to call it here and I mean, we, we probably should. Jump so, you on, so you'd stop saying uh, some stupid ass, the stuff that oh you're God, saying. I'm, I'm, I'm saying just all wisdom, but uh, I do want to leave. Okay. I do want to leave our listeners with one, this one little nugget that I found that I thought was really fun. <laughs> what? Don't give me I'm that interested. smirk. Uh, no, no, I'm, say, I, I'm interested. I, I, Come on. I felt that look. <laughs> I felt that look from the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially um so uh, when the pentagon papers were released um there was a lot of stuff that was leaked uh, uh, about 
you know, what Nixon had going on. And, and obviously we all know about Watergate and what happened with Nixon. And, and he was always paranoid, oh, gosh, yeah. so he was spying. But apparently what was found out is that the government was actually doing some pretty shady shit during the Cold War. Uh, we were like... Yeah, uh, essentially really? we were like, yep, yeah, we were su- surveilling Americans without telling them the, the 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 government was trying to influence certain movements, um, all kinds of fun stuff. But I think what's Don't the worry, best? It's, it's now legal with the Patriot Act, so yeah. <laughs> the best though is that Nixon set up a task force because he was so afraid of leaks. Code names, plumbers, <laughs> because their job <laughs> was to stop government leaks. Yeah, from, and I thought yeah, that was genius. Uh, that uh, that Nixon not only was he paranoid, but he was a sucker with puns. All right, that's all I got. <laughs> well, Josh, uh, that was um, not completely agonizing. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll we'll call it there, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for joining the NBS podcast. Um, yeah, we appreciate you. We love you. Thank you so much. We'll see you guys next time. Yeah, I don't have an outro. Bye. Uh, Everything that guy just says, bullshit. Thank you.